Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Week one in court has wrapped up in the Letitia Stout case. Letitia's on trial for the murder of 11-year-old Gannon Stout, her stepson. There were opening statements and various witnesses during the week taking the stand, and already there were some new aspects to the case we haven't heard of, and ones that is information on... You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Behaviors from Letitia that are very, very important to highlight in this video. This trial will be ongoing for the next six plus weeks or so, or five plus now that week one has finished. So in today's video, we're going to do a quick recap and I'll share what went on in court and the highlighted points. This upcoming week will be all kinds of crazy since we have this case, Lori Daybell's case has begun and the West trial. So wish me all kinds of luck because it's going to be crazy. So now let's get into it. Day one in opening statements, the prosecution did a recap on what happened to Gannon. They said also there was numerous stories that were coming from Letitia. She gave a reason that Gannon went missing from a friend's house, that there was a fictitious man named Eduardo with the G. Then it changes again, but this time the man named Quincy Brown, and just so happens that she saw his ID fall out of his baggy pants and read his name. That was her words. Then she went to look for a bike north of Colorado Springs. Gannon was going to test the road bike. He fell, he had a head injury, and Quincy took Gannon. Then the cartel was involved. Then there was an allegation that Landon Hyatt, Gannon's mom, was involved. And Michael Allen said that the defendant distanced herself from what she did. Now, side note, from the very beginning, I called Letitia a distancer, noted her pattern was going to go the distance and to look in the distance, and that's exactly what ended up happening and what she was doing. She went the distance in multiple ways. Letitia Stoke is claiming and submitted her plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. She's saying, I did this, but I was insane while doing it. Her initial plea was not guilty, but then she changed it. We heard her talk to the judge writing notes about how not guilty she is. Now the prosecution stated in court, he says, all of her actions were deliberate and they betray her claims of insanity. She knew what she did was wrong and the evidence will prove her sanity. He tells the jury there will be experts. He says you'll hear them and 
he says that the jury can discern if it's credible or not. He says if it isn't, you can discard it. If it's credible, you can decide. Same holds true for other and all expert witnesses. He then brought up the doctor who recently diagnosed Letitia and Michael said the doctor is saying that Letitia is insane. He says like he said with the other expert witnesses, you take what that is said and, and what is um, being diagnosed and measure it against all of it. If it doesn't make sense, you can discard it. Now, there was an important point. He talked about Letitia's daughter, Harley Hunt, who was 17 at the time of Gavin's disappearance and death. We're going to hear more and more and more about details about her and her position. But he said Harley was in the best position to know Letitia's state of mind. She becomes Letitia's closest confidant. She rode with Letitia on the van ride, and that van ride was when Gannon was found in Florida. He says she'll be able to tell you in her own words if she was in her right mind or not, and the prosecution also said that she could say that she was. And as a refresher, like I was saying, Gannon's body was found 1,400 miles away from Colorado Springs. Letitia tossed his body over a bridge just three miles away from where she stayed in a hotel room with Harley. Gannon was found in a fetal position in a suitcase that was taken from their house back in Colorado. The prosecution said Letitia held every decision and they were deliberate, thoughtful actions. He said every single piece of evidence, even the most mundane that's going to be shown in court, has been purposely given. The question is, does she know the difference from right and wrong? He talked about the burden also being uh, on the prosecution. They have to prove that she was sane. He said, I ask you for justice for Gannon Stoke. I ask to find Letitia guilty in the first degree murder with tampering with a deceased body, transporting Gannon across the country, and tampering with physical evidence. He says the evidence will guide you toward those convictions. He said they also played the clip of a 911 call that reported when Gannon was missing. You could hear Letitia herself say that she was the last person to see Gannon alive. Not a Guardo with a G, not Quincy, not anyone else but her. Then it was the defense's turn, and oof, I tell you, drama, drama, drama. And if I hear him say one more time, staunch or stouch as Letitia's last name, I swear to you know who. Now, there were two angles that the defense took during these opening statements. Number one was the plea of not guilty by reason of insanity and what the jury questionnaires said. The, they said that the pleas of insanity were just an excuse, doesn't exist, it's fake, and that it's evil or she's evil and guilty. And he talked about also them saying that raising the insanity plea is a bunch of BS. He then proceeds to walk out or pretend to walk out of the room. He faked it. And this was quite dramatic in my opinion. It was obviously fake. He stops at the door and he turns around and he says, ladies and gentlemen, I can't quit. I gotta just do my job. He says, after the opening statement, he's seen the photos, the smiling pictures of Gannon. He heard how, you know, Gannon was being shot and stabbed multiple times. There's hundreds of witnesses and evidence. And he says, I can't check out now and just sit down and ride it out. I can't do it because it wouldn't be fair to the court, the process, and wouldn't be fair to Miss Stoke. And I know people will say, well, who gives up? Well, what's fair for Miss Stoke? or stouch, as he says. He says the court systems do, they care, the law does, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. Now, I was trying to remember where I saw these theatrics, and I think it came from the series called The Lincoln Lawyer. If you remember where um, it was from, where the lawyer was going to walk out, stops, 
you know, turns around and then keeps continuing on. I'm pretty sure it was a Lincoln lawyer. Let me know in the comments below. But the defense says we have lost in the court of the public opinion and the media. They asked for a fair chance, but he says, I can see in your eyes, ladies and gentlemen, and for a lot of you, I can burn in hell for representing Miss Staunch. I might as well be the devil himself running his mouth. <laughs> but the number two point was made that Letitia's background as a child, and they were playing and leaning to it, I guess I should say leaning into it, that she had a troubled childhood. She was abused as a child by her stepfathers and that there were many stepfathers. He said that Miss Stoke was hiding and ailing trauma and abuse that has been going on since she was a toddler. She had a troubled childhood. Mother wasn't really much of a mother, he said. She had a line of stepdads or boyfriends, he says, or whatever you call it, in and out, in and out of their life from the time she was three or four until she finally moved out. He said she suffered. She suffered horrifically from these stepdads and boyfriends of her mother. He said the abuse was first on her mother and then eventually landed on Letitia. He says first it was just physical, then it became more than that, and it happened regularly until she was a teenager. He said it was constant. He said she used to have to sleep in the car in the driveway to get away. He said some turn out fine and some don't. He says this is gonna come down to insanity. And the defense is also claiming that Letitia has dissociative identity disorder, and that was formerly known as multiple personality disorder. It was only recently diagnosed for Letitia just this March of 2023. Gavin was murdered in 2020. So this is going to be interesting to see how they came to this conclusion. Already in week one, we heard Gavin's dad, Al Stout, talk about Letitia, and he had no indication in the year or years he was with Letitia that she had different personalities or went by any different names as they are claiming. Now day two, they started going in on phone calls with Al and Letitia. There were three phone calls, I believe. They were all chopped up. Um, and that happened at on February 13th and February 14th, just a couple weeks after Gannon was uh, reported missing. And there was the tall tale of a man named Aguardo with a G where Letitia changes her story. Um, it was day two or three that she changed it when Gannon was missing. That wasn't reported in the beginning. And she says she gave a code, a garage code to this guy named Aguardo to fix their carpet. She claims that Gannon knocked over a candle and burned the carpet the night before. This Aguardo guy had a name change though because then he became Quincy. And she said she knew this guy whose name was Quincy because she saw his ID fall out of his baggy pants. Quincy is said to be the one that assaulted both her and Gannon. And then Quincy took off with a bunch of their stuff, including Gannon and a suitcase and his blanket. Then the story became that they were looking for a bike for Al for Valentine's Day. Gannon test drove it, fell and hit his head and then was whisked off. But wait, there's more. Then it became, it was uh, a guy who was laying on the road and Letitia stopped and then the guy hopped in the truck and then told him to drive home, so Letitia did and that's when she was assaulted and then he stole Gannon. Now what was interesting is how well Al was on the phone with her. This was being recorded by the FBI these phone calls. His son is missing, he has to deal with that horrific aspect, and then you get Letitia to deal with her and her 7,000 stories. Al said while he was on the phone with her that there were times that she said, uh, he said that she was really crying, 
you know, that was real and then the times that they were fake. Now there was an interesting pattern with Letitia while these recordings were going on. And uh, whenever she talked to Al, she would say, you know, tell the story, yada, 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 like that, yada, 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 all the time. I said that in a different video, um, you know, the reference to Seinfeld. But in later conversations with officers, she didn't. And she seemed to use yada, yada, yada when she was fabricating her stories, which is quite a lot. So it's quite fascinating to me, but quite annoying. Now, Michael Allen, the district attorney, would ask at the end of each call or interaction with Letitia about her behavior. He says, did she go by any other names? Did she appear different? Was there a switch to her personality? And every single day so far, that first week, there hasn't been any indication of that from the witnesses, which is interesting. Al also set some excellent boundaries with the defense. They would ask Al something, but try to put things, um, you know, words in his mouth, so to speak, and Al would questions say, mm, did I say that or is there a transcript? I want to see it. So I say good for him. That was excellent, excellent for, from my point of view. He did a great job on the stand. There were times where of course he broke down about Gannon and times where he was beyond strong. There was one point where the defense brought a picture to the stand um, of Letitia Gannon and his little sister the day before they were that Gannon was murdered where they were out hiking and Mr. Tallini, Letitia's lawyer, left it up there, this picture and Al asked him to come grab the picture because he says he doesn't want to look at it. So again I applaud him for his boundaries for sure. I don't know if that was intentional or not by the defense, but I'm thankful that Al could speak up. Now, days three were also more phone calls between Al and Letitia, and then there was witnesses, or more witnesses, I should say. You can hear Letitia on these phone calls get more and more audibly upset on these phone calls. What was an important aspect of these calls was that she was bringing in the word immunity into play over and over and over. She wanted immunity. She was strong in that. And then she's telling Al, you know, once she gets that, then she'll talk. He was very patient throughout these calls, but at the end he was getting quite agitated and rightly so. He asked her straight up, did you kill Gannon? And she said, no. Now she just kept bringing up this immunity thing. Now, there were four witnesses on day three. Number one, the guy who found the suitcase. He was inspecting the bridge with a coworker. They found the suitcase, opened it up, dumped it out, and realized that there was a body in there. You could tell this bothered the guy because there was something he said that was, it was really hard to hear. He talked about seeing two little feet and seeing socks with footballs on them. Talking about Gannon when he was found, it was, it was awful. But there was an aha moment of sorts because this guy inspects the bridge every two years. And think about that. Gannon was discarded in February of 2020. By March, they were inspecting that bridge. He may not have been found for another two years. The second witness was a detective in Florida. He talked about finding the suitcase. And also the detective from uh, Colorado was witness number three. And they were talking about also uh, identifying Gannon. Witness four was a patrol officer at the house. Now on Thursdays in this trial, they are not in session. So Fridays they are, they skip that day. On day four, there was more witnesses. There was a crime scene technician. They described seeing the suitcase and they attended the autopsy um, and they said how the suitcase was broken. There, well, there was a wheel broken and a handle and you know, talking about lifting it. But there was interesting parts about when they found the suitcase, there was a pillow inside with a defect and it coincided with bullets that were fired into the pillow. And think about that, that would be muffled, right? There was a projectile, there were projectiles from the pillow. 
Now they talked about what Ganon was wearing, that Ganon was wearing a Minecraft shirt. There was um, defects in that shirt as well. We know that Ganon was stabbed 18 times. He was wearing a jacket as well and that was interesting to me because they talked about him coming home and we, I had wondered if he did come home that afternoon or not. This has been a conversation over and over, but I wonder if Ganon was known to take off his jacket as soon as he got home or it was normal for him to wear his jacket. That's important to me, in my opinion, in a small little detail. They talked about the pants he was wearing as well and that he was wearing stripes. We saw that um, type of pant the day that he was seen on camera leaving the house. Now, witness number two was a DNA expert. He was a senior crime analyst. He's done over 8,000 samples. He talked about how DNA is more stable in a cold environment, but when it's hot and humid, DNA degrades rapidly. We know Gannon was found in Florida. He talked about how it was later determined it was Gannon. Now, they had a couple things on there about being, you know, receiving bones and that kind of thing to, to identify him, and that was a little bit disturbing in my opinion. I didn't like hearing about that, of course. Uh, witness number three was a worker who worked at Candlewood Suites. That was in Florida. This was February 4th, 2020, when Letitia checked in. They talked about paperwork. This was interesting. They talked about how Letitia got a discount by saying she was with the Ford Motor Company and that she was driving a vehicle that was a Nissan Altima, but we know she was driving a van. And the van had Gannon in it in the suitcase. This van was a cargo van. It wasn't divided, so you could, uh, you know, see and smell things, you know, all over the place. But this was zipped up. He was wrapped in blankets, but I don't know about the smell and how much there would be. Notable, Letitia's daughter was with her. Now, witness number four was an officer with the El Paso County Sheriff's Office. He'd been there for 26 years. He talked to Letitia the day after Gannon was reported missing. He wanted to follow up, see if Gannon returned. He talked about when a child was reported as missing or a runaway. He said that age is a major factor in these instances. And because Gannon was 11 years old and unaccounted for during winter months, and also the overnight is an extreme risk, he said there was additional resources that were put into place. He said it would be different than how they would treat, you know, a 16 year old who uh, has run away several times. and you know, comes back a day later. Now, he talked about Gannon's phone and he said he looked at it for any sort of hints, you know, towards searches that were conducted on his phone. He was trying to see if Gannon may have searched anywhere like a map. He says sometimes you don't know where to look and you see on their phone if they searched for someone or entered a friend's address or something. He didn't see anything. He also said he had canvassed the neighborhood. Now he got a call back though on January 31st, which is four days after Gannon went missing. He was told to go back to the Stoke residence and said that Letitia and family members might be removing items. And he was told that they were also wearing smart smart watches that might contain information, which was Letitia and her daughter Harley. And he noted that there was a van, a cargo van, unloading items from the house. And there was also a Nissan, but that was driven by Letitia's aunt. He said that the family had helped Letitia load things into the van. Now Letitia talked to the officer and talked about the fire. She said she tried to put out the fire with Gannon's blanket, but the fire got bigger. She said she was trying to smother the fire. She said Gannon got on some got something on the front of his shirt and that was during the fire incident. The officer said he attended to over 30 
runaway or missing type calls. They discussed his observations of parents' reactions throughout his career. He said in a situation where a child is as young as Gannon and missing for the first time that usually there's more of an emotional reaction from the parent, especially when it's been overnight. He said usually emotions are visible and present where there's you know, no idea where the child has been for the last two days. Now, in these recordings we heard in court, Letitia sounds quite jovial. She's chit-chatting with these officers, keeping it light. And this is only hours after Gannon was murdered, brutally murdered. And she cleaned up his blood from the room, which was quite a bit. So the officer was asked if she appeared to be suffering from any mental health disorders or disease. His answer was no. Now witness number five was the vice principal. She interviewed Letitia along with two others who were in the room. Letitia was applying for a resource teacher position. She'd be working with kids with special needs from my understanding. Now the roles and responsibilities was to serve as a case manager for students with learning disabilities and that person would teach some classes to help meet the needs of these students. And she would work as a co-teacher with a general uh, ed teacher. Now she was offered that position at the school, but during the interview there were three of them that decided that they would like to move forward and offer Letitia the job. But they were doing reference checks and then they would bring it to the principal and they would decide what to do and move forward. So this vice principal also had text exchanges with Letitia and the first was two weeks before the murder where it was simple questions and Letitia was described as conscientious, like a person who wants to do the right thing, she says, before a job, it was normal behavior. This was, of course, purposely asked in court to show her mindset. They said, how would you describe this type of exchanges in these messages? She said, typical of somebody who's a new employee. She said she was conscientious and making sure she's putting herself in her best job. Letitia gave some references on her application and in true Letitia style, in my opinion, there were some lies. Letitia gave a name on the application. The vice principal had a hard time getting in contact with this person. Her name's Connie. She was given another number by Letitia and it ended up being Gannon's phone number that Letitia provided. And according to the vice principal, a woman answered the phone but said it wasn't this Connie woman that was on the reference. Fast forward, Letitia texted the vice principal in the middle of the night. This would be the early Monday morning, the day Gannon was murdered. She lied and said that her stepdad got into a car crash and died. She's not going to be in. That was at 3 a.m. in the morning. The message says, I'm sorry for the time of night, but my stepfather passed away. He was hit by a car, etc., etc. And in court, they described the text exchanges. And the vice principal described some of the tone of the messages as angry. She says she, the vice principal said that she looked at the message when she woke up and she said, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry, Letitia. You know, shall we try and find a sub for you today? A couple hours later, Letitia says, question mark, it's apparent all my family lives on the East Coast. I'm trying to find a way to get there. And the VP says, okay, I'm just trying to understand your plans to find coverage and my understanding you are not coming in today. Letitia says, yes, it's my parent. I can't believe that would not be an assumption in a time like this. VP says, I'm so sorry for your loss, but I can't make assumptions. We'll get you a sub today. Now, one of the interesting thing was it was asked um, to this VP if the defendant asked to be referred to by any other names. She said, well, no, but she did sign her emails as Dr. Stouk. But her demeanor was appropriate according to the VP. You know, no other names she was asked, but 
She says she was asked, did she appear to you going through any mental health crisis? No. Now, there was another witness who was an officer who was there for the missing persons report. He had a body cam on. There were a few points to this. Letitia talked about a picture of Gannon holding his switch case, again jovial, and she said, I'm almost positive he's with someone he knows because he searched, can my parents find me if my phone is off? Now, this was from a list of searches um, which was in the arrest affidavit and this search did indeed happen. It happened the day Gannon went missing. And I believe if I remember correctly, it was that afternoon. Gannon, however, didn't search that. Letitia did, in my opinion. She also made sure to say, you know how social media gets all blown out of proportion on body cam. When the officer asked, is there anything missing? She said, nothing is missing. He just had his game and that he's a huge Mario fan, Sonic fan, she said, and he had that with him. This is another reason why I thought the switch was missing. And now people following the trial are a little confused because there was a picture of a switch, but we don't know yet if this was still missing or not. I was um, told or I, I remember it being said that the switch hasn't been found. So, but there was also in this conversation on body cam, there was quite a bit of um, talk about these Nintendo devices. There was quite a few. There was a Nintendo Switch, a Nintendo Lite, a DS, and, and another one. And she said to the officer that he took his game console. And she also talked about one of the guns she thought was missing, but she ended up finding it. Now remember, Gannon was shot. And she also brought up the box and the box cutters. She said she was cutting carpet. What I find interesting is how she inserts these little pieces of evidence, right? You know, here's what you're gonna find basically. And remember, Gannon was also stabbed, but we don't know what he was stabbed with yet, but he was stabbed 18 times and Gannon had defensive wounds on his arms. And I was thinking, well, why does she keep talking about the box cutter? Did she stab him with the box cutter? We don't know yet, stay tuned for that. Now, there was another officer that took the stand, talked about Letitia and Harley, and this one is a doozy. Harley was driving her vehicle, Letitia got in the right back rear seat. And the officer described this as weird because he says it was just two of them in the car and Letitia was slouching down so no one could see her or just enough so that her head was peeking up so she can look out the window. He said this behavior is common when following fugitives or people that feel they may be subject to surveillance and avoid detection. He said he followed them for about an hour and ended up at a parking lot in front of a store. The officers had a search warrant for Harley's vehicle and cell phone. The plan was to wait for Letitia and Harley to leave the store and then they'll approach them. But Letitia came out first and they approached her and Letitia started acting super odd. She was walking backwards, kept looking towards the back and then she ran from the officers. She chucked her car keys while she was running across the parking lot and uh, they caught up to her. They got the car keys and the car. You can hear Letitia later tell the story on that weird interview where her head was turned, but she of course tells a different story, right? She wasn't saying that she ran from them. She said she understood why they were coming up and at first she didn't know who they were. Have a look. I didn't know it was a law enforcement officer because when he came out, I guess he was putting his jacket on and it, it wasn't necessarily his fault. He was adjusting and happened to catch me, but I saw the gun and I panicked originally and kind of 
thought, oh gosh, I got the, like, who's this guy? And then once I realized it was the sheriff's office, I was totally okay, but they still had a gun and told me they were going to shoot me. But I was really concerned about my daughter asking why she was being detained in handcuffs and things like that when that shouldn't even happen for a child. That shouldn't happen for someone who was standing inside of a store shopping because we couldn't have any clothes because all of our clothes were here. If we came here and got clothes, you know, we would be harassed. So she went to purchase some underwear and things like that and was putting the handcuffs in the store, you know, and then brought out with men with guns. And there's that, that's just not okay. Now noted in court, other than the odd encounter, the officer said that he did not observe any severe mental illness or defect in Letitia. The next witness was a chief medical examiner and forensic pathologist. He testified in court about the process of identifying human remains found in Florida, and that was Gannon, and he explained that the identification can be made through dental records, DNA analysis, or matching bone fragments. He also discussed the stages of decomposition, how temperature and humidity can impact the rate and type of decomposition. The next witness was a detective with the El Paso County Sheriff's Office and has 11 years of experience. She tracked financial records and talked very briefly about the Avis car rental that Letitia rented at the airport before she picked Al up from the airport. And she also was in charge of the records uh, for any American Express transactions. The officer stated that Letitia's behavior was evasive and said that Letitia was more concerned about her own well-being than Gannon's. We've seen that as a common theme throughout. Next witness was a girl who worked, uh, she was a co-worker of Harley Hunt's and she occasionally attended Bible study with Harley. She said they both worked at receptionist at a place called Massage Envy. That's in one of my timeline videos, but they did not hang out outside of work. They would occasionally text each other jokes and memes, but never visited each other's houses or met each other's family members up until this investigation. This girl said uh, she worked with Harley on January 29th, two days after Gannon went missing and Harley was acting frantic and crying. And she said later on that day, uh, this girl, her name's Janine, was in the car with Harley and Letitia, who had just been discharged from the hospital. Basically, Letitia was in the hospital because she faked it, in my opinion, uh, when she was at the El Paso County Sheriff's Office and she pretended that she couldn't breathe and whatever, had a panic attack, whatever it was, and she stuffed some Kleenex down her pants to hide so that the officers can't grab her DNA. She ends up being transported to the hospital by the emergency responders and then magically, in the report it says magically, she was better as soon as they got there. So now we know that the mystery person who came and picked up Letitia was this girl, Janine. So Letitia goes and gets in the car. Janine says she didn't notice any changes in Harley's demeanor when Letitia got in the car, but did note that Harley was quieter than usual. Janine allowed both Harley and Letitia to stay at her house that night. Letitia got a hold of Harley's phone and was holding it in the back seat of the car. And she turned off the location services and texted Janine to ask if Harley, from Harley's phone, remember, can stay at their house. Janine said this was super weird, especially because Letitia was sitting right in the back. Why didn't she just ask her? Interesting, right? So Letitia and Harley stayed overnight at Janine's house, and Janine said she didn't notice any strange behavior while they stayed at her house. There were a few notable moments in this testimony, however. Letitia made a really odd comment when getting into Harley's car. She said, jokingly, according to Janine, she said, I hope you don't think we are a bunch of murderers. Janine said she found that weird. Nothing else was weird, uh, really, except for that statement. 
and she wasn't acting like Letitia was losing her mind or anything like that. You know, again, no indication of that. The next witness is a girl named Nicole who is a resident of Lorson Ranch where Gannon lived. And she provided details of interactions with Letitia. She talked about how she searched for Gannon, that, especially that first night to all hours of the morning. She gained Letitia's trust. They talked back and forth. Letitia ends up trusting her and she ends up asking Nicole if she could basically lie for her. And apparently there's 33 pages of messages of this back and forth between Letitia and Nicole. Now, notable, there was one thing that she said in there and it was, he would have been found close by if I was the killer. Now note, Gannon wasn't even found yet. So this is Letitia saying about him being dead. No one would know that yet, except for Letitia, right? She also said, now I think he may be out of state, which he would have been. And there was a lot of conversations about Gannon's bed and blanket. He says, this is the cover he left with. She tries to bribe Nicole, says, what if you just said you remember seeing something suspicious after seeing this picture of Gannon because the kid had the same cover. I just need help getting this out there so that they can start posting in other states, even if you would call Albert first and he'll keep you anonymous. And so Nicole was talking about as she was gaining Letitia's trust, she was starting to bribe Nicole basically and lie for her. And uh, uh, Nicole at one point got super emotional on the stand. But this is a common theme with Letitia is more and more manipulation. And that's what the prosecution is trying to show is these manipulative ways of Letitia. Even Al talked about it, how he's used to her manipulating him in various ways. There was things like stories that were coming up that um, Letitia would take money from Al um, without any explanation. She made up a, a scenario, let's say, where she said there was an intruder in the house. This is long before what happened to Gannon. And then she fessed up and said, you know, that she lied about it. So there was constant manipulations. We see that with pretty much every person in her life. Uh, I shouldn't say every person because that's probably extreme, but there is some background, let's say, about her doing things or saying things with her, the people that she worked with, that she came into contact with. She always talks about this. She still did this while she was even in jail about, you know, her violation of rights. You know, her constitutional rights are being violated, which takes them to an an extreme like I've seen no other. So it does show Letitia's more manipulative ways on the phone calls in this. Like I said, Al was very strong in court. The prosecution is doing their due diligence. And to me, it looks a little sloppy from the defense, if that's the word I wanna use. I say this again, you know, some people are like, well, big deal if he says the name wrong and calling her Stouch or Stout uh, or, um, staunch but basically in my opinion if you don't pay attention to the details and what else you're not paying attention to so there's that I I know it's kind of a different type of trial because we already know that she did it she just has to you know prove that she's insane or was insane at the time but it's not looking good the first week so far that I see with all these expert witnesses saying yeah no I didn't see any mental issues 
that can be argued, of course, but we're going to see what the next four or five weeks, uh, what, that, what that brings. Let me know what your thoughts are. Have you watched the trial? Um, are you tuning in? I did do a live stream that talked about day one, two, three, and then fourth was on Friday, so that's why you have this video. I will be watching court all week, plus Lori Daybell, plus trying to tune in to see what's going on also in the West trial. Please make sure to subscribe so that you can get these notifications, you can get you know more videos from me. I'm doing videos every week, so <laughs> we'll see you in the next video.